This morning, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, uh, or on your phone app this morning. We're going to just begin looking at that text, 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Make sure I turn there. There we go. And we'll be in chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse uh, 14 in just a second. Paul uses some interesting imagery here, and I want to, uh, to share some of that with you. This morning, I uh, was running out of my coffee beans, and for those of you that n- know me, I am now mostly a decaf guy because of my old age anxiety, and uh, my heart started to hurt when I was drinking you know, way too much caffeine through the day. But I was running out of beans, and I don't know if any of you do this, if you buy beans and, uh, or pre-ground coffee, in this case we grind it at home, and I dump it into another container in there, but the smell of the coffee beans is lovely. In fact, I was having a conversation with one of our elders a couple weeks ago. Uh, they don't like coffee, but they like the smell of the coffee beans. See, I kept that really neutral right there. They, you can guess who it is later. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do this thing after I dump them out. And my family mocks me because of my care about smells of things. So I'll dump out the beans, and the smell fills the air, and then I'll do this in the container like that. Does anyone else do that? Anyone else want to confess before? Okay. Oh, I see a couple hands there. Yeah. Isn't that a lovely smell? And it can be kind of disturbing also to see someone do that. But the smell of the coffee beans, the aroma, a few months ago, at the Bloedel Conservatory here, there was a plant, or is a plant that's still there. It's called the corpse flower. The common name is the corpse flower. And this thing blooms, uh, if it's cultivated well, it may bloom every three months, uh, or I mean three years rather, three years. If it's in more of its natural environment, it can be 10 years or more between its blooms. In this case, there's some in North America that have been blooming in various conservatories, um, various gardens. And, oh, you can leave this corpse flower up there. That's fine. Leave that, leave that bad boy up there. And uh, the corpse flower is named that because it puts off a smell that to us smells like rotting nastiness or dead flesh is some one of the ways. I, I haven't had the chance to smell dead flesh. I'm just going to take that on uh, who's ever put it that way. But this idea of, of rottenness. And for most people, it's sort of repugnant. But for the insects that help pollinate this flower... They love it, and they come flocking to this thing, the cor- corpse flower. And now, because it's, it's somewhat of a rare flower, and it's huge, this thing is a huge thing when it blooms, it's also a big sort of tourist attraction for these uh, different places where the, these plants are grown here in North America, the corpse flower. So today, I want us to begin to read this text. And Paul uses the image of aroma, or he uses the words of aroma to provoke both the smell and also uh, he uses a couple other words in here, metaphors, images to talk about his ministry and the ministry of the apostle. And then we want to ask, so what does it mean for us in our context this morning? So I'm going to invite you, if you're able to do so one more time, to stand with me as we read the text. And then we're going to jump in today and go a little deeper with this. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 14 through chapter 3, reading through verse 6. So hear these words today. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him, meaning Jesus, in every place. 
For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, we're an odor from death to death. But to the former, those that are being saved, a fragrance of life to life. But who's adequate for these things? Verse 17, for we are not like so many others, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit, but we are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. Now chapter three, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? We don't need letters of recommendation to you or from you as some other people do, do we? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone, revealing that you are a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, and not on stone tablets, but on tablets of human hearts. And two more verses here, or three more rather. Now we have such confidence in God through Christ, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as if it were coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, our competency is from God who made us adequate to be servants of the new covenant, not based on letter, but on the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this opportunity we have to engage with it communally. And Lord, thank you that not only are we the temple of the Spirit as individuals, but when we gather together, we are plural, corporately, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus, you promised to be here uniquely, where you are lifted up in worship and word and prayer, where you are lifted up in scripture and in ministry and communion. And so come, Holy Spirit, illuminate this text to us today, that we might receive what you have for us as a community that we might go and do what you've commanded us in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen or amen, all right, you can be seated this morning. Well, I'm so glad you're making it out, and I want to just encourage you to continue to let people know we are back meeting together again in the facility here on Inverness, and uh, we just want to do ministry and serve the Lord and help people connect with Jesus and come alive in him as we are looking into our next season together. A few things that I want to point out as we begin to walk through this text today is the, the tons of references that Paul packs into what we would call the Hebrew Bible or the Older Testament and the imagery. N.T. Wright talks about Paul being sort of a master of mixing his metaphors all up, you know. He'll, he'll talk about one image and then he'll bring in another image in order to make a bigger point. So today he brings in multiple images. He brings in the Roman triumph the march of a military general back to his home city, having defeated an enemy with captives in tow. And along the way, people would come out from the city to celebrate and welcome this general or the emperor, uh, as the case may be. And they would burn incense and they would be uh, shouting in celebration and, and, and this idea of the Roman triumph. He also weaves in fragrance through this triumph, this march of a triumphal general back into the city, celebrating victory over another people with the Jewish concept of incense and burnt offerings in the Old Testament that were offered as acts of worship, as we talked about a little bit even earlier this morning. That incense was offered as a, as a symbol of the prayers or while the prayers of the priests were being offered and also the incense of the barbecue that was offered in the temple sacrifices. If you want to know what those temples would have smelt like with all the burning and the animals, it would have been like a massive 
barbecue. And that may either draw you if you're excited about that or repulse you if you're a vegetarian. But that is, these were the smells that would have been in the temple precinct as well, or the tent of meeting. He also alludes to tablets of stone, and we'll come back through these, but I want to get these images out there for you. And he's talking about the law that was given to Moses. And in the tradition in Hebrew Bible, it tells us that God etched these on tablets of stone for Moses originally. And this talks about the law or the Ten Commandments, which most of us are familiar with. And then he brings in the image of a living letter of writing and being one who is writing, or rather Jesus is writing through Paul. Uh, In the ancient days, oftentimes a scholar or an academic may not do all of their scribal work by themselves, but they'd have uh, an understudy, as it were, or or pay someone in particular to write out their words. And Paul is using that image as well, that he is one who Jesus is writing through to write to them. And then he talks about this idea of worship and finally new covenant. And these tie into Jeremiah. If we remember a couple years ago, we did a series through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah the prophet talks about God providing a new covenant that uh, comes after the initial Mosaic covenant. Once that's fulfilled in Christ, Christ is the new covenant. And Paul is using that language as well. So he's a master of mixing images here. And, and he's telling stories through short little phrases. Instead of giving you a whole big story, he's just doing things that would trigger something in their minds, whether they were Greek or Roman or Jewish or some combination thereof, a Hellenized Jew or otherwise, they would, all of these things would speak to the different cultures that he's writing to in the church at Corinth. And I find this fascinating how he uses these images. So let's dig a little deeper this morning, shall we? If you are still awake with me, would you say amen? We're going to dig into this text. So in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, if, the, if we're going to give you an outline today, there's just three sections that we're going to look at this text. Verses 14 through 17, the triumphal faith or how God sent Paul. Um, The the second section would be verses 1 through 3 when he talks about his ministry credentials. And then 4 through 6 when he talks about his confidence and his competence in ministry. You can see that outline there and also in your paper outline if you're writing notes uh, to go deeper in home church this week. So the first couple verses, verses 14 through 17, is this triumphal faith that God has sent Paul and, and this image of smell is so important that he uses there. And again, my family makes fun of me because maybe this is true in every family. Maybe there's a smeller in every family. I have no idea, but I am the smeller in my family. I, I smell things and I always say the nose knows. And I have a massive nose too, for those of you that don't, can't see that from wherever you are. Um, and I'm like, the nose knows. Say it with me. This is, so, this, is, this is worth all the money you paid to get in the door today. The nose knows. One, two, three. The nose knows, it doesn't lie. If you notice in the image this morning, uh, this idea of milk. I remember in grade school, before I knew any better, and they would hand out these little cartons of milk. And the first time I ever tasted rotten milk, I didn't know what was going on, but it was sour and nasty. And I think that forever scarred me as a small child. So the nose knows. I will smell the milk before I will pour the milk because of that experience as a kid. So Paul says this uh, in these passages that he's like someone being led by Christ in the triumphal procession of Christ into the lives of the Corinthians and elsewhere as well. 
And if we look at this passage, we may be confused and think that Paul is saying he's part of the sort of the victorious side of the march, but in fact, he's identifying as a conquered person who is being enslaved by Jesus, being drugged to wherever the Spirit is moving him, or being drugged along to wherever the Spirit is uh, leading him to minister for Christ. And so he's bringing the image together, but he's also talking about this idea of being a servant to the victorious Christ. Now, see how he mixes that along with joy. He bursts out in thanksgiving while identifying as well his place as a servant of the Lord. He reveals some key things about ministry of the church and leadership. But this eruption of thanksgiving happens here. But thanks be to God. And Paul uses this phrase, this thanksgiving, throughout his letters. Oftentimes, he'll just pause and burst into praise. And, and as he's dealing with serious things in this church and joyful things in the church, he, he has these doxologies, or they call them these doxological passages, where he just is overwhelmed by what Jesus has done in his life. And he can't help but say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for who you are. But thanks be to God. And sometimes these passages go for many verses, but here we get a little bit of this doxological praise, this, we might call it a charismatic pattern of embracing praise and strategic and spontaneous praise in the midst of dealing with all kinds of stuff, which does tell me something as well in my practice of faith, that sometimes in the midst of dealing with whatever we're dealing with, it is good to just stop and be present to what God has done in the past and reflect on it and give thanks. That there's something about thanksgiving that's transformative in our Christian life if we practice this. And Paul does this strategically, intentionally, and we might even say spontaneously when he's initially dictating or writing this letter to these churches. He gives praise. Now, Paul lets himself be overwhelmed by these thoughts about the mercy, grace, and love, and the liberating work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So in 14, again, he uses this image of the emperor entering the city. And people would line the streets and burning spices and shouting and banners. Religious festivals that often involved parades and singing and dancing and heading to a temple. These things would be just amazing celebrations of the victory. In verse 15, he moves on and he tells us this again. For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those being saved and among those who are not perishing an odor of death to death. I think about our church and I ask the question is, are we smelly enough? Are we smelly enough as people? I'm not talking about, did you forget to wear deodorant this morning or fragrance? Or are we a fragrance free place? But does our church exude an aroma that those whom the spirit is working on can smell and respond to and be drawn in by the grace of God? Are we full of Jesus? Are we Jesus-y enough in this house that this church exudes an aroma that if you were to have your spiritual glasses on, like we talked about two weeks ago, it would look as if there is incense rising and oozing from this place of the goodness of Jesus. Are we smelly enough? In the book of Revelation, Jesus writes to one of the churches, and we talked about this some months ago, and he says this, I, you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. And he's calling them to be hot or cold. Cold was refreshing, hot, both of those ancient baths. So even today, we talk about cold dips and hot dips. And in this case, the image is of the smell. And my main concern is that, do we smell in a good way or a bad way? Do we actually 
live in such a way that our neighbors experience that and say, I want to figure out what's going on with those people. It also means do we position ourselves missionally? Paul is being led, being led by Christ. The phone is ringing. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Paul is being led by Christ into different places where this smell is being, being uh, lifted up or being given out, as it were, being offered as a sacrifice. Are we smelly enough as a church? Say it with me. Am I smelly enough? <laughs> One, two, three. Am I smelly enough? And so my concern in this COVID time is that maybe some of us have forgotten that. And also that, give another illustration, what's one of the symptoms that you might have COVID? You can't smell, you can't taste. I think this is an interesting thing as well. Paul is saying, we are exuding this aroma. In verse 16, for those that are rejecting, that's a bad smell. And here's a thing, a thing that I think the church we, we sometimes forget is that if everyone agrees with us and loves us all the time, we're probably not being faithful to Jesus. That sometimes it is that smell is received by someone who is uh, working against love as something as a stench. And so Paul is saying, we are being led about which the same smell, but the perception of the smell is different depending on where you're at with your receptivity to Jesus. If you've been someone who's full of Christ and you've encountered someone who's hated you because of that, then you probably have the right smell. You are smelly in a good kingdom sort of way. I want to go on a little bit here. Paul said those that are proclaiming a false gospel in this church, there are leaders that are not, that indeed what Paul is bringing to them is death. So Paul coming into the church, confronting some of the false leadership that's going on, he said their reaction to this is death. They're smelling the same smell, but they're experiencing differently because it threatens their power or position or the false gospel that they have promoted. All right, let's move a little bit on here. Verse 17 says this, For we are not like so many others, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit, but we are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. So what's he talking about here? This is the propositio, uh, Ben Witherington would say. This is sort of the key of all of what Paul is addressing in all of 2 Corinthians right here. For we are not like so many others. So this is the problem. This is the issue in the church. There are those that have been coming to them who are using the ancient rhetoric style of the sophists, and they're speaking in certain ways, and they're using a certain kind of, of rhetoric that is drawing them, but they're using the rhetoric to draw them away from the center of Jesus. And they're also critiquing Paul because in this case, he's not collecting money from the Corinthians to support his ministry. Now, I want to pause there, full stop, because I can hear it already. I just want to be preemptive in this. Paul does not oppose accepting money for ministry. In fact, he argues forcefully for paid ministry in Galatians 6 and 1 Timothy 5 in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But the point here is that the money is not oriented towards personal benefit and the motive of the minister is not greed, and he's critiquing that, but rather the gospel, the life of Jesus. And so I think this is important to note, and these sophists were telling the Corinthian church, because Paul would not receive Roman patronage from them, that he is somehow a lesser person and not a super apostle like them, but in fact, he's being strategic. He planted the church, he founded this church through the work of Jesus, and he's saying, in this case, it didn't seem appropriate because I didn't want that leverage over me. And so, again, he wants to confront those sophists who are receiving money or tickling ears to tell them things that are not Jesus-centered. 
And so there's a false teaching going on in order for them to keep the profit rolling. I don't want to pick on, uh, I want to be careful how I say this. I think in some cases in ministry, it can be really easy to tell people what they want to hear and to build a following, to leverage your charismatic personality. And again, I've talked about where I've been saved in the churches. We would have these type, these personalities come in as traveling ministers and then there would be a love offering or offerings given. And sometimes I think some of them were hucksters. They were telling people what they wanted to hear. They would often dole out prophetic words left and right. And some of the stuff, I think some of them were genuine. So I've never like, gone completely of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on those gifts of the spirit. But if there's no accountability, you don't know the person in real life. You don't know their warts and their flaws. I'd be really suspicious about that kind of thing. And I think there are some ministers in North America that don't preach a Jesus-centered message. They preach sort of to their choir exclusively in order to build up that following. And I think there's something Paul is critiquing here in his critique of the sophist in 2 Corinthians. We have to ask those questions and wrestle with that. Okay, let's move on to the last little section here. Ministry credentials, verses 1 through 3. We look at the last part here. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And the rhetorical answer is no. And so in this translation, so we don't need letters of recommendation to you or from, or from you as some other people do, do we? You ourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. This is interesting, this message here that he's using with this uh, concept of the letter or the written letter as well. When I immigrated initially to Canada, I had to get letters of recommendation. There's another reference to this, I know. Eventually, I gotta become a citizen, so I stopped using these illustrations, I know. Somebody gave me a nice riot act on that the other day, but I get letters from the FBI. For myself, for my wife, I had to get letters from the undergrad and graduate institutions I attended and send them to another Canadian agency to verify if these degrees are the same thing in Canada or not. I had to get references from the churches, of course, as well. There was layers and layers of letters of recommendation, and we're all familiar with this idea of letters of recommendation. But the hucksters in the church, to use that language, were saying, well, Paul didn't come with these letters of recommendation, so we need to discredit his ministry. And Paul retorts back and says, well, in fact, you are, this church exists, the church at Corinth, because of the work of God through me, that you are living letters. You would not exist as followers of Jesus if it had not been for the ministry of Christ through myself, through Paul, as he's saying here. And so he's replying to that. He appeals to the proofs of them themselves and also the Old Testament in this case as well. You are my letter. N.T. Wright says this, Paul was clearly hurt by his, the accusations that he was writing a self-recommendation. And he comes back to it several times in Corinthians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he revisits this thing like at least six more times about this idea of these letters of recommendation. And he responds by telling them what an apostle was all about and that their behavior is outrageous to assume this regarding who he is. And so he also says this in uh, the verses, if we want to go in the verses one through three a little more in chapter three, he says, um, referring to this idea of written on this, their hearts by the spirit, not on stone tablets. And so now he's talking about this new covenant confidence as well, referencing Jeremiah 33 and also in the Old Testament in the uh, giving of the 10 commandments as well with Moses that the spirit has written on their hearts. And in fact, the letter, the other uh, 
thing that he uses to defend himself against this uh, critique is you are living letters, but not only are you living letters, it's been written on your hearts by the spirit. You exist again by the work of the spirit of God that he participated in, he tells them. Now let's get to the little last part of here. Um, oh, I, I could say a little more about the Holy Spirit before we get to the last uh, three verses there. Gordon Fee tells us that in the Corinthian letters, Paul refers to the work of the spirit over 140 times. And he speaks of the spirit present in individuals and in the midst of the people. And that the work of the Holy Spirit is what he says, this is the validation of what Jesus does in our midst. So ultimately in this church, and, and we'll talk more about this as we go through 2 Corinthians, and I would hope ultimately in our church, the validation of the ministry of Pilgrim, the validation of the ministry of us together, of me, of those serving in leadership, is not necessarily our charismatic personality types or our ability to tell the story or how well we can organize and dis deploy resources that ultimately the ultimate smell test for our congregation is the work of the Holy Spirit drawing people and responding to the message of Jesus. That that's the ultimacy that we look for. That that is the gold or the platinum standard is, is this place where centered so much on Jesus that the aroma of Christ exudes from it, not from the program, not from the show, not from the person personalities, all those things are secondary and certainly are important, but they are not preeminent. The smell of Jesus, the aroma of Christ is. And I dare say in a church that is small and revitalizing, that Jesus is really all we've got and all that we need in order to encounter what he has for us. And Paul is telling them of this as well while he's experiencing these critiques. Later on, he says things like this. When he goes into his full-on polemical sort of feisty mode at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, people are talking about their strengths and all of this, but I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because it is through the weaknesses that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, is most evident and perceptible to people. When I am weak, he is strong. So we get to the very end here. Still with me? Say amen. All right. Here are a few of you. All right. Now. Now, he says, we have such confidence in God through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as if it were coming from ourselves. So Paul immediately identifies that he is the minor player in this equation. Jesus is preeminent. And we have this confidence in Christ. There is something about a confidence and competence, a faithfulness and fruitfulness that Paul does celebrate. And he's been telling them, look at the fruit, look at the fruit, look at the fruit. What? Why are you even here? Because Christ is doing something. And he says, my confidence and my qualification comes from God. God calls those often who do not have the right kind of privilege. And in this case, Paul is saying to them, indeed, my critics are right. I am not in the, the place of privilege like they are in this context in, in Corinth. It is, that it is easier again. For God to work often in those that are despised and disliked in our cultures because that positions us to be more open to God. It's on the margins where the kingdom work really becomes evident, whether it's the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the confused, the messed up. That is where we look and we want to be in order to experience this aroma of Christ where it smells like good coffee beans versus the corpse flower plant. 
Because those who are desiring that life respond to that smell. And Paul says, my confidence is in him and what he has done. I'm not adequate in myself, but from God who makes us adequate to be servants of the new covenant. Now he's referencing Jeremiah again here. Not based on the letter, but on the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, his letter of reference is written in living beings, persons, prayers, decisions, love of the community at Corinth. And God has now done what the old Mosaic law could not have done. And some of the opponents in the Corinth may have been trying to pull in aspects of the law of Moses and saying, no, you've got to have Jesus plus this. And Paul says, no, in fact, what Jesus is doing is the new covenant that the prophets were pointing towards, that Jeremiah was pointing towards, that Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16 talks about this as well. That what God has done in Jesus has now inscribed the law on our hearts and has unleashed life into the world. And that is Paul's qualifications to steward the life of Jesus to refresh and change the whole world. And that is ultimately our qualification as a local church. It's do we talk about Jesus and try to follow his teachings as empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is what we have to offer is the life that Jesus has unleashed through his spirit in the world. And as we focus on that and as we center on that, we are experiencing his power then to serve even when it's hard, even when things may be going sideways in our world. But Jesus is at work in us. N.T. Wright says that for Paul, there's a new concept of one God, one people of God, Jews and Gentiles together, one future of God's world united by the Holy Spirit. So let me land the plane this morning. Let me land the plane this morning. A few things to remember as we get ready to step away from this text and ask the so what questions. So what? Well, the first thing to be reminded of is if you're in leadership, and certainly if you're called to ministry as a vocation, and we're all called to minister in our lives, period, is that the responsibility is to be God's vehicle for spreading the good news of Jesus. If it's a vocation, it's through preaching, proclamation, teaching, the knowledge of Jesus, so that the world is exposed to the good news. My purpose as a pastor and when you are ministering in various ways is ultimately bound up in how am I communicating and sharing Jesus? That Jesus rose from the dead, that God is at work in the world right now by the Holy Spirit, that he is present in our world and that he is desiring us to name him and know him personally in Jesus. This is a sweet smelling aroma, but not everyone will get the smell, we are warned. Jesus is to be the main message. Jesus is the center. My goal is to ruin your appetite for fluff. In fact, in churches that we've ministered in the past, over the years, as the shaping and forming happens, as I've had people call me every once in a while and said, you ruined me. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean by that? Somebody actually said it that way. I'm like, you ruined it. I was like, I'm always asking questions about Jesus and also about how do I live it and is this church living it? <laughs> And trying to follow Christ. I was like, I didn't ruin you. I helped get you centered on Christ. Those are the kinds of questions that every church should always be wrestling with. Amen? Our gospel, our work flows out of the love of God revealed in Jesus. So the knowledge of Christ is central. And Paul is emphasizing that again and again. It's not what the sophists are saying. It's not what the speech makers. It's not the ancient Roman. Uh, I can't say the word right now. The ancient Roman speech makers. Rhetor, rhetorician? No, I can't say it, okay. Ancient Roman speech makers, rather, it's, it's this center in Christ. 
The second thing is this, that the message of Jesus often is a divisive message. Say it with me, divisive message. It's a divisive message. It lays out two options with belief or rejection. We even see uh, this Jesus way. It is a way of walking and you're either working to walk in that way or you're not. Either welcoming Jesus or not welcoming Jesus. There is no middle ground with Jesus. It's either moving towards or moving away from Christ. And this is something that the aroma image again tells us. The same smell is perceived differently by different people. And so we are again told it's either an aroma of life or a stench of death. Think about that. Same smell perceived differently. And they used to say for cologne or fragrance, you spray it on yourself. This is some old wives tale or something like, and you lick it. And if it tastes like soap, it's bad. Is that, anyone hear that? That's some in the recesses of my brain. There's some like something like that. It's not in my notes. I should have looked that one up. Go reference that on Google later. Same scent, stench or aroma, sweet or good aroma. This is the scandal of particularity. Jesus is the good news. And the temptation as a pastor in this season is to say, maybe I just need to be more entertaining. And there's a role for that for sure. But at the end of the day, it's about appointing to Jesus. It's keeping him as a focus. And so the divisive message of Jesus, he talks about this himself in his teachings. And the third and final thing I want to emphasize in landing it or bringing it home is that competency in the kingdom of God is often experienced through this willingness to suffer for Jesus. Now, that's not to say that we seek out suffering per se. But if we are being led by Christ, sometimes we're going to be led into situations that are hard and awful. But that's where Jesus' aroma is most needed. And if we are willing to grow up in our faith, sometimes he's going to lead us to engage in things that do stretch us and do cause us pain and suffering for the sake of people coming alive who are currently experiencing death. And oftentimes we want to run from those folks or we want to run from those situations in our life, but that's exactly where we can experience the miracle power of the Holy Spirit if we would just get over our biases and assumptions regarding uh, that. We often want to run from the corpse flower, but in this case saying we need to run towards those things that Christ is leading us to, that there's suffering often, and that competency and faithfulness is not always defined by how shiny you are or how charismatic you are. But often are you willing to be led where you would not naturally go when Christ is leading you? The aroma of Christ is revealed when we're most dependent upon him. I just want to say this about this being led where you may not want to go. Jesus said this to Peter in his old age. He said, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will be led. And he was talking about Peter being martyred eventually, but martyred as he's sharing the fragrance of Christ in the center of the empire. The aroma of Christ is revealed when we are most dependent upon him in those tough places. If everyone responds well to you, you may have a people-pleasing problem. Or if they all respond negatively, you may have an emotional immaturity problem. Or perhaps no response, you've been fully assimilated into the kingdoms of the world. Are we an aroma? Are we smelly? And ministers, finally, if you're in ministry or you're ministering, we're all in some way in ministry as followers of Christ. Are we Christ-centered? Are we aware of our need for the Spirit, that He is the one who will equip if we yield to Him? And I guess my final word today is this. 
Are you responding to the call of Jesus? He's calling us to be the fragrance, to be the incense, to be the aroma. Are you smelly? Is the aroma of Christ coming off of you? You'll know it because some people will be drawn to it and others will be repulsed by it. But it's the same smell. And we are called to be that. Being led by Christ in the triumphal procession as those who have given our hearts to him. And in that, he promises to fully redeem and reconcile. And one day all things will be reconciled in him. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we get ready to pray? We leave today. If you're able to do so. Thank you for your grace and patience as we adjust to being in the space again. And uh, we're working through some things as well with that. Be inviting. Let people know we're back as well. And I encourage you to do that. But let me pray for you. Lord, today we wrestle with this passage in 2 Corinthians. And Paul in dealing with issues in the church at Corinth, by extension, reaches forward to our time as well. And we ask, Holy Spirit, illuminate this to us for our context. And Lord, we want to commit and recommit our lives and our church to being a place where you are the center, where the aroma of Christ wafts from us as individuals and as a people gathered and scattered wherever we are. And Lord, we confess that oftentimes it's easier simply to go with the flow of the kingdoms of the world around us. We confess that often it's easier just to say, oh. But we look at the example of Paul, and here we are 2,000 years later because of the ministry of Paul, your ministry in and through him. And at some point in our lives, we smelled the smell of the cookies baking, of the chicken roasting, of the coffee beans of the kingdom of God. And we, sell, we said yes to that. We want to be part of that. Save us, change us, Lord Jesus. And so I pray today again that you would strengthen us to be your kingdom smelly people. <laughs> that we would welcome the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives that your incense would be burned on the altar of our hearts as we are living sacrifices. And God, re-center re us, I pray. Re-center us, I pray. And to the person today that may, this is new to them, Lord. And that smell as they get closer, their perception of it is changing. Maybe it's an acquired taste or smell. <laughs> And they're realizing there's depth and beauty and life there that they're not finding elsewhere. I pray that they continue to wrestle and ask questions of you, of the Bible, and of the church. That you would stir up that inner motivation. And maybe that person's ready to take a next step towards you today. If that's you, please, you can pray, Jesus, I invite your spirit to come live within me. I give my allegiance to you. I want to believe in order to understand more. And you pray that, you accept him, you confess to him, you believe on him, he will live in you by his spirit. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.